There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at SixSecondStories.com. All right, if you're like me and you have dreams of making things, in my world it's films and, and books. For you it could be you know, a beautiful garden, a a t-shirt company, whatever it is, but you're struggling with the day-to-day actionable task to make those dreams come true while you juggle being a parent, uh, having to make money, uh, having to stay in shape, having to stay mentally sound, all of the little things that you have to do that just eat away at the minutes of your day. Listen, I feel you. I feel you and I have an episode for you. But before I introduce it, What's worst is if you keep putting off those dreams and taking those little steps to achieve those dreams and you never actually get to it. That would be the real tragedy. 
What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab podcast. This is episode 121 with Matthew Dix. Now, Matthew is a writer of fiction and nonfiction, an elementary school teacher, and a like 50-plus time moth storytelling story slam champion. So he's a competitive storyteller, and let me tell you, he has some stories to tell. Now, I first found him through his book, Storyworthy, uh, which is about the art and science of telling stories, like how, you know, all the formulas that he uses and the approaches that he uses to tell stories on stage and to be as successful as he has. Now, he's written plenty of, of fiction books. I actually know him mostly from his nonfiction. Now, very recently, he wrote a book called Someday is Today, and it's about this. It's about how do you make that dream that you keep saying someday I'm going to do this and make it today how do you make that actually happen what are the actionable steps that you can take and implement today right now right as soon as you're done listening to this episode and pursue that dream because the way we the way he looks at it rather is it's not you know this big huge dream it is a big huge dream but it's full of tiny little steps along the way and the more you chip away at those tiny little steps the closer you get to that big dream i cannot tell you how chock full i will tell you this uh i created i don't know if i will uh, promote them all or put them all out there or post them all but i created more teasers for this episode than any of the other episodes of the Storytelling Lab podcast, that is a fact. And that is because there are so many little nuggets, little perfect sound bites that are less than a minute, little gems that you can take away from this episode. I mean, it is so quotable. It is so tweetable. I'm telling you, you're going to want to listen for these little bites because you can you can take them. This is, this is how he does what he does, right? He writes a book called Someday is Today. You can take them and immediately put them to use, immediately. So a little bit of context when we were chatting uh, before you guys know how I start the show. I just kind of roll right into the conversation. We were talking about the state of the world, you know, and he was asking, he's basically just asking small talk like, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, ah, pretty good considering, you know, the state of the world these days. Just making a little joke. We're still kind of pandemic bound, post-pandemic, not really. Uh, and he said, he, he he started talking about that and he was like, you know, it's funny. He's like, we always, each generation does that. And he, he led right into storytelling and narrative and it was perfect but i just want to give you the, the 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 preamble that came before that he talks about how each generation uh assumes that they have it worse than the previous generations and it's not true and he, he backs it up with facts and then he talks about that concept of getting caught in our own narratives and so that's what we were chatting about right before and i was like hold on let's record and this is that conversation so here is my conversation with matthew dix and i hope that you love it I said, every generation assumes that their generation has the worst moment. And um, I said, just go back to the Great Depression and ask yourself, would you rather be alive today or during the Great Depression? This is a really interesting point uh, because people people reject that. Like if you propose what you just did, which makes perfect sense to me, it's pretty simple, right? Like things yeah. are better than they were. Doesn't mean things are great or that there aren't bad things, but people really like, they 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 push back against that if you were to say that I, I it's weird because i've had this conversation with about five people this week and i always go to <laughs> i say in 1970 my father was drafted and forced to fight in vietnam a war based upon a fake incident that was perpetrated by the government in order to get us into a war at the same time the president was being impeached and 
college students were being shot on Kent State for protesting. Do we really think that our generation has it any different than them? And I say, no, <laughs> I think, yeah. um, you know. And we haven't even experienced that, like the draft, like just being getting a card in the mail saying like, hey, you got to go do this now. Like, we, I don't even know when the last time I mean, was Vietnam the last time that happened? Yeah, that was the last time it happened. Yeah. yeah so with I mean, my father, you know, within my lifetime, you know, my father, my mother gave birth. My father went to war, you know, like <laughs> and came back completely changed forever. You know, as my uncle says, came back an entirely different person. He said, you'll never know your father the way he used to be before oh. he had to go to war. And, you know, and then people, uh, yes, it's not perfect and it's not great. And we need to fix a lot of things. But um, every generation wants to think that they are the one like, you know. OK, so this 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 brings up an interesting point to me uh, that I think ties into what we'll probably spend most of today talking about. You know, basically people living in their own narratives, it's really hard to see outside of that. So you see that on the macro level, kind of what we're talking about, but also on the micro level, just my personal journey, my experience is like often uh, all that I think exists in my little world. And it's hard for me to, to see that. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the, the power of narrative uh, in a sense, but it can be an ugly side of it. Maybe. Yeah. It can be. I mean, it's very easy to assume that, you know, the world revolves around you because you are the protagonist of your own story. Right. And so, you know, I talk a lot about in my new book about the spotlight effect, the idea that everyone thinks that they are being watched by other people when all of the research that they do shows that no one's actually paying any attention to you whatsoever. Nobody and, cares. And, Right. But it's paralyzing to people because they feel like everything has to be perfect and they can't like take a step forward unless it's calculated and careful because people will judge them when really no one is judging you because they are the protagonist of their own story. Exactly. And, and they are assuming the same bizarre thing that you are. So there's all this research. You know, my favorite one is they send college students into class wearing the most outrageous and ridiculous t-shirts and they'll go into a class of 50 people they'll sit in the middle of the room they'll wait till the end of the class and then they'll say how many students do you think noticed what you were wearing and their answer is always somewhere between half to all and then when they actually interview the students in that class it is almost no one noticed whatsoever and, and they can't believe it they, they're like that's not possible and it's simply the fact that nobody cares what you're doing most of the time Okay, so two-part question spawning off of that. What problems does that create, kind of living in that reality where you are your own protagonist? Uh, and, well, and then I'll wait for the second part. But what, 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 how, do, how does that limit people in terms of like what they can achieve, what they can do, like how they exist in the world, happiness? Well, I don't think it's entirely terrible when you view your life through the lens of story and view your life as you know, you yourself, the protagonist, right? I think the trouble comes into play when you assume that your protagonist led life is somehow viewed in the same way by everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely, I think, imperative, actually, for you to be telling yourself your own story and to be sort of thinking about your life in terms of chapters rather than a full experience and, and framing things and having some perspective and looking for meaning where you haven't seen it yet. But to think that anyone else is doing that for you as well, I just think prevents you from 
being yourself. I, I actually think the mm -hmm. worst thing that happens is people live lives of least resistance. They like water down the mountain. And so what people often do, I think what most people do is they follow a path that is dictated by other people, society, the universe, you know, expectations of others. And they end up in a place where they kind of aren't sure how they landed here. You know, and one of my favorite questions to ask people is not what do you do for a living, but tell me how you ended up doing the thing that you do for a living. Because oftentimes those paths are decidedly uninspiring. They are, well, my brother was working at the company and he got me a job. And 29 years later, I'm still working <laughs> in that same field. You know, well, is that what you wanted to do as a kid? You know, yeah. no, but what I wanted to do as a kid seemed unrealistic, which really is a word for hard, yeah. right? It is the path of greater resistance to do something that is hard. And most people say, well, you know, it was unrealistic for me to be a baseball player growing up. And I'd say that's kind of true, but could you have landed in, in baseball? Could you have landed as a coach or a marketer for a team? Could you have become the traveling secretary? Could you have landed in sports equipment? Could you have landed in sports training? Could you have become adjacent to the thing that you loved and attached to the thing you loved? Mm -hmm. Or could you have instead become, you know, the manager of your father's insurance company? which is what happens to people instead. They Big time. they just decide it's too hard and they follow the path of least resistance. And I think that's the problem when they think other people have greater influence on them, that that their protagonist life is viewed as a protagonist by other people too. Mm -hmm. this, is a, this, is, this is a good point that often people think that there is one way, like you have to be the baseball player and that's it. And we don't think about other options. That's the one picture that we've painted. Uh, so the right, that's the... That's the problem. You know, I always tell people when you're setting a goal, you should view it as a horizon that mm. you can't quite see. So mm -hmm. it points you in the right direction, but it doesn't land you in a particular location. So I want to be in baseball, maybe as a player, but it's going to land you in the realm of, let's say, sports and maybe baseball, as opposed to one particular area. You know, I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I never expected to be consulting with Fortune 100 companies every right. day on storytelling, but it's on the horizon. It's, totally. It is in the area of where I was aiming for. You know, I, I allowed myself an expansive view of a goal rather than a like sort of a laser pointer view of the goal. And I think that allows people to find opportunities that they couldn't envision originally. And they mm -hmm. often you know, for me, I would have never wanted to be involved in marketing. You know, if you would ask me 10 years ago, I would, that would be the last thing I'd want to do. But I afforded myself the opportunity to head in the direction of storytelling rather than I want to be this one thing. Totally. That's such a valid point. Um, so I haven't had the chance to read the book yet. Uh, but I saw you like post, you know, this is months ago, like po post just a picture of the cover and reading the title alone. I was like, Yes, <laughs> like we we all need to hear that. So I have a, I have a pretty good idea of, of what it's about um, and I look forward to reading it. But I want to talk about that a little bit because this is a this is a real problem, like for many, many people uh, having this vision in their head, the story they want to live out and not one, not knowing how to like go about it just like you know logistically like what are the steps that i take but the main block is often just 
that just taking the action to do it. And I'm a filmmaker. And so I still have, you know, stories in my head that I've been wanting to tell for years. I mean, I still suffer from this, even though I do it professionally. So I know there are a lot of people who are the insurance salesman or a bank teller or whatever that have this thing. Oh, I really want to write that book. And then life goes on, life happens and they never do. So, I mean, I know this is a big topic, but it's like for those people, what are those simple, what's that first step? How about that? Like, just, just to like, just to break ground. I guess the first thing I always talk about is hope. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that what happens to people is they have a dream, but they don't really believe in their heart that it's possible. You know, once you start to accept the fact or the reality that small decisions mm. repeated over time, small positive decisions repeated over time will pile up into enormous results. I think what will happen, well, I think what happens to people who I work with at least is a far reaching goal becomes much more reachable when we acknowledge that it's a thousand tiny steps, mm -hmm. which means if you make one today, now you only have 999 more. Yeah. I take that view with the novels I write. A novel is about 5,000 sentences. So if I am sitting down to speak to you and I look at the clock and I realize I have three minutes before we're supposed to start our interview, I'll write five sentences of my wow. book knowing that I'm getting five sentences closer. But yeah. people have this odd preciousness about creation and about <laughs> the journey rather than looking at it as a thousand tiny steps and the idea that time is critical. So, you know, my production manager, she read my book and she said the most life-changing thing from my book that has already transformed her life completely is the idea that we don't need 30-minute or 60-minute or four-hour chunks to get something mm. done, right? So I always encourage people to make a list of everything mm. you could possibly do in 10 minutes because our lives are filled with 10-minute black holes and what happens is if you don't know what to do in those 10 minutes, the easiest thing to do is to pick up your phone and to make yourself feel bad about something in the world. And so instead, I don't do that. Instead, I go, oh, I have 10 minutes. I can fold half a load of laundry so I don't have to fold the other half later, which means I'll get to something else that I want to do. I can empty a dishwasher. I can pet my cat for 10 minutes because science tells me that petting an animal makes me feel better. So I will make that choice. I can do some flexibility training in 10 minutes, right? I can do balancing activities in 10 minutes, or I can write five sentences in 10 minutes. And that's how I get stuff done. And that's when people start, when people stop waiting for perfection to happen, you know, for that moment, that, that golden four hour period where they're going to accomplish something. Like if you were looking for that, you don't actually want to accomplish the goal or mm -hmm. you're going to wait until you're dead. You know, someday is today is the idea that, people wait for the someday and what happens is they run out of some days and every day is filled with these moments that they can be taking advantage of and they don't. Mm. I feel a little personally attacked <laughs> right now. I will just have, you know, uh, well, I'm, just look at it as an opportunity that you oh, have totally. not seen yet. So, Oh, totally. I mean, I, I am, if we stopped right now, I'm so grateful for the conversation because I am terrible of those 10 minute little gaps that you mentioned, uh, you know, it's, it, it's hard to like get into the moment, 
But I think that's the thing about creativity, right? Is like, we think it has to be this grandiose thing and I must have inspiration and have my coffee or my drink or whatever. And like be struck with this thunderbolt of, you know, of, of creativity. And it's, it's not, it's a science, it's a formula, it's work. It is. Well, I like to remind people that during World War One, there were men in trenches in Europe wearing gas masks. Artillery was exploding over their head. And literally they had notebooks that they were scribbling stories into those notebooks, hoping that if they survive this battle and the next 10 battles, they might someday make it back to the United States and the writing that they did might be worth something. And they did that in a trench. And so when I meet someone who says, well, I can only write from like 10 to two, that's my creative time. And I really need smooth jazz and a coffee. I think, well, it's a good thing you're alive in 2022 because, you know, when when the great works of literature were being made, you know, when Shakespeare was writing during the plague, he did oh. not have Starbucks smooth jazz or a latte. You know, I suspect that he was writing, you know, in terrible conditions while people were dying around him. You know, most of his plays were produced while he was in quarantine. He was quarantined and not allowed to leave places because everyone was dying around him. And he wrote his great works then. So it, people just get very precious over a process. And part of creativity, too, is not necessarily being creative, but making sure you're getting the things done that sustain life so that you can be creative later on. Mm -hmm. So part of creativity is just make sure that you figure out the quickest way to do something so that you don't have to do it any longer than necessary so that you can get to that moment of creativity. Use that 10 minutes, not maybe to create something new, but to sweep the floor so you don't have to sweep it later. You know, take advantage of those moments. You know what I love too about just this five sentence, you know, 5,000 sentences is a typical novel and, you know, getting three done, the, the, the chipping away at it, right, concept. And this little epiphany has, has just happened. This is really helpful. You know, often we look at the mountain, right? We look at the mountain top, and you're like, how in the hell, you know, how am I going to get get to that? But if you flip it, if you inverse it, and we're chipping away at the number, it 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 we can't help but for it to build momentum. We get excited. Right. So if you've hit a hundred sentences today, and you're thinking, wow, I only have four thousand, you know, nine hundred left. That feels a lot better than I've I've only done one and I'm still I'm still looking. I mean, the you know what I mean? It's like seeing the uh, timer count counting down and, you know, you know, the end's coming. I think that switches things maybe in people's minds to see it being chipped away at instead of uh, instead of just seeing the bigger picture. That, I feel like it builds momentum. And then those three to five sentences you wrote before we started talking, you know, you're excited to get back and continue adding to that. Right. The other thing is that, that creativity doesn't have to be linear. So when I start with working with someone, let's say they're going to write a book, mm -hmm. I say, well, where should I start? And I say, well, is there a scene in the book that you're excited about, something you can't wait to get to? And they say, yes. I say, well, write that. You don't have to start at the beginning. Totally. You can start wherever you want. The same thing if you're building a business. You're going to have many, mm -hmm. many tasks. And some of them are going to take five minutes and some of them are going to take five hours. But some of the five-hour tasks can actually be done in five-minute increments. And so when, you, when you're getting ready to do your work to build your business that day, it's not like a mountain because unfortunately with a mountain, you have to start at the bottom and go to the top. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing something creative, you can jump into the process wherever you want. So you don't need to do what you think is next. You just have to do something that will eventually get you to the point you want to be at. And so when we, when we stop thinking that everything has an order, 
we can then do the things that we're excited about in that day or the thing that fits into the time frame mm -hmm. of the day or even to where the context of the situation is later today i'm going to be on the beach and i have a meeting someone wants to talk to me about a book and i said well i'll schedule that meeting which can be a phone meeting while i'm at the beach so i can like watch my child play in the water while i talk for 30 minutes to this person about a book idea Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, rather than seeing this as a linear process and that has to get done at nine o'clock and then this has to get done at 10, I sort of place my things in such a way that I can do them when it's best. Last night, my wife and my family were watching Stranger Things and my wife knows whenever I'm watching TV, I have a laptop on my lap. I am almost fully engrossed in Stranger Things, mm -hmm. but I do know that I need to log in voices for payments received. And I know it requires almost no attention. Right my part but i need to do something so the choice is do i do it at one o'clock in the afternoon when it's like the next thing on my to-do list or i do i say to myself where in my day can i be doing something where this mindless nonsense will not interfere with the joy of what i'm doing mm -hmm. but i can also accomplish it so my, my wife knows i always schedule like television tasks which are <laughs> yeah. oh things that don't require any mental effort, but I will have to do some clicking or some sticking or, you know, anything <laughs> like that. So when we start dividing our work that way too, our days get a lot more joyous and fulfilling because we can get things done at the same time. This is what I was thinking about. Like if you jump to the point of the process where it's exciting and fun for you, again, we're like building up momentum. We, we want to go back and then do the other things instead of like, here's the part that I don't like, or here's step, what I think is step one. It's such a, such a great point. What season are you on stranger things, by the way, are you caught up? Two. Yeah. Two. No, oh, two. you're just starting. It, it takes us forever to watch a show because if I'm given the choice between watching television, even though I love television mm -hmm. or doing almost anything else, I always choose almost anything else because when I'm 96 and I'm wondering what to do with my time, stranger things or whatever show i'm not watching right now that i must watch yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. going to be there yeah so again it's sort of that idea of i'm pushing away these things to a better time because right now where i am with young children and the life that i lead i can get on my bike or i can go watch you know another episode of stranger things and i'm going to choose my bike every time and my wife is the same way this is not to say we are television snobs in any way we love television we also try to make sure that things like TV are meaningful, which means we watch television together. My wife and I actually right. don't have a show that we watch apart from each other. And most of the television viewing in the house is actually done as a family so that it is viewed as more valuable than just I'm going to binge that show all by myself over the course of a weekend, which three years from now, I will have no memory of the show and I won't have any you know, any benefit of, as opposed to something like going for a bike ride and having a chance to see something extraordinary. And even if you don't, you're going to have the benefits of that exercise for the rest of your life. So I'm, I think in those terms. I love that. I, love I that like one. your choice of the word momentum too. I think that's a really good word. You know, I often it's, tell it's people, everything when you're trying to accomplish something, right? Is like that it's belief in yourself. It's, it's, but momentum, I think is the right word because when we start, it's, it takes a lot to get the engine chugging along once it, once it is, it's much easier to coast, right. To like have a process and stick by it. But for me, at least, and I think a lot of other people, it's that first few steps. that's really hard to, to, to get going. Right. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld 
actually, well, Jerry Seinfeld, he has a calendar on his wall. Mm -hmm. And every day that he works on writing jokes, he puts an X on the calendar. Mm -hmm. And the way he described it is once you've got 27 X's in a row, you're never going to miss a 28th. And so he just X's every day and he has a string. I have written a blog post every single day since 2003 without missing a day. Wow. It's, if you get it started at some point, why would I ever miss a day if I have that kind of a streak going, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point. If you've done a hundred in a row. Right. So once you're rolling, that momentum can carry you. I tell people who want to lose weight, I say, weigh yourself every day and wait for the day when you suddenly have lost two pounds because you, you, you missed a meal, you walked longer than you usually did. Like something happens if you watch your weight where it fluctuates, wait for the day where you drop two pounds, make that your first day. Cause now you're already down two, and you're excited that you're down two. And I guarantee you that day you are going to be better about checking your calories, making sure you're exercising because totally. you don't want to go back up the two. Mm -hmm. It's going to fluctuate. You're going to have to accept that fact. You know, weight loss is a long incremental process, mm -hmm. but always start with something that gets you on a roll. I was working with someone who wanted to become a ukulele player. And she said, what should I do? I said, well, let's buy the ukulele. Cause that means an instrument will be on its way to your house. Like that's a huge, easy win. That's great yeah. momentum, which is it's arriving, you know, and on its way while it's coming, let's get a book so you can learn how to do it. And let's find a YouTube channel where that's going to teach you. And let's make sure that once it arrives on the day it arrives, you learn one note and mm -hmm. let's just make that the goal. Learn how to play any e, pluck the E, pluck the E, pluck the E. Beautiful. Tomorrow we'll learn a new note. Mm -hmm. And so building up those little successes in the beginning, I think creates that momentum that allows you to feel good about the process you're in, you know, you're engaging in. That reminds me a little bit. I think it was it called like habit stacking. Did you read uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits? I haven't. I was told not to read it while I was writing my book because <laughs> Don't make sure you don't accidentally like yeah, steal yeah, anything. Yeah. So yeah. I'm getting ready to read it now, but I've avoided it. It's great. It so and the, the simple things like that, like if you want to go to the gym, just putting your gym shoes like by the door in the morning, just any any little thing like that to kind of uh, make it easier or harder rather to say no. Right. As a, this is a good way to look at it. Um, are all people creative? I think so. But I think that the problem is, we sort of identify creativity as writing or art mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that. I think that if you've always wanted to have a vegetable garden in your backyard and that's your dream, I think that's an incredibly creative thing to totally. do. And I think you can spend, you know, thousands of hours of your life happily in that backyard, experimenting with what you're growing and how you're growing it and what you're going to do with it. So yes, I think everyone's creative. I think the trap is that people just assume that creativity is some, you're going to produce a thing that someone will want to buy or that someone right. will want to put in a museum or in a library. Whereas I think like you can just be creative in the way that is meaningful to you. I call it dream chasing. You know, people, I tell people I'm not a productivity or efficiency expert. I'm a dream chasing expert because that eliminates the idea that you have to work to the bone. I'm working with someone right now and her dream is to sit on the couch with her husband and watch the 50 greatest films of all time. Most I of them are in black and white. And I think that's a fantastic dream. I love it. And she says like, but it doesn't feel very creative to me. And I said, it sounds extremely creative to me. First of all, it's not something I would actually want to do. 
but that doesn't make it not creative or worthy, right? But you want to sit with your husband, watch a great film, and then have a conversation about it. And that's your goal. You know, during the pandemic, the lockdown period of the pandemic, I had never seen a Marvel movie before. So my wife, my son, and I went through the entire Marvel canon in the recommended order. And we often talk about during lockdown, that was our our treasured jewel was every night we sat down and watched one of those movies. And then we talked about it endlessly Mm -hmm. for days. It's such a great journey, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful. And I just think that's creative. You know, the idea that we're going to construct our lives in such a way that we're going to live this narrative while the world outside is falling apart. You know, that's a nice thing to be doing. So, yeah, I think people are creative in lots and lots of ways. I think that the idea of perfectionism stops them. And I think the idea of a singular view of what creative success is Mm -hmm. causes people to fail, you know, rather than having that expansive view of what creativity could really be for them. Although you're met, you are met, not you personally, we are often met with people who say something like, I'm just not that creative, right? I hear that all the time, or I'm not a storyteller. I'm, you know, not an artist. What For them to find some form to explore that creativity, and again, not, not for uh, monetary reasons or productivity, what benefits does it add to their to their lives what what extra benefits right i think i mean the the easy sort of probably not helpful answer is that it leads to a fuller life you know i um i have something i call the hundred year old plan in my book uh when i was when i was 22 i was the victim of an armed robbery I was managing a McDonald's restaurant in Brockton, Massachusetts, and three men broke in after the store was closed. And um, they wanted to get access to the safe, to a part of the safe that I did not have access to myself, and they didn't believe me. Hmm. And so I found myself on the ground with a gun to my head, and they were counting back from three. And they told me they were going to kill me. And I had known they had already killed other people because the police had come a week before and warned me about these guys. They had killed a man in a Taco Bell that I could see outside my drive through window. So it was a moment in my life where I was absolutely 100% certain that I was about to die. And the remarkable thing about that moment for me has always been that I wasn't angry or sad or afraid even. The only thing I felt was regret. That in the final, what I thought were going to be the seconds of my life, the only thing I was thinking about was all the things that I wanted to do that I had not done because I was 22 years old, had been kicked out of my house, had been homeless, and had just started to claw my way to something that I was excited about when this happens. And so, you know, I don't recommend it for anyone. It caused me <laughs> years of PTSD and, and real trauma. Yeah, You know, it was the worst moment of my life, but it's a hinge point in my life because The way I start living my life is I now, rather than envisioning myself as a 22 year old on a greasy tile floor, I say when I'm a hundred and I'm lying in my deathbed, when I'm trying to choose what I want to do with my life, I don't trust me in the moment. Because if you ask me right now, what would make me happy? I would say a cheeseburger, golf and sex. Like those would be my choices every single day, (laughs) but that would not lead me to the life that I want to have. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I ask that hundred year old version of myself, that theoretical future of me, Mm -hmm. I say, how should I spend this day? And that version of me has never said, 
spend the weekend binge watching the show that everyone is watching. That version of me has never said, there's a game called Candy Crush. You should give it a try, right? (laughs) That version of me is so much wiser than the version I am now. But if you you start looking ahead and you ask yourself at the end of your life, what do you want to look back on? It's the creative endeavors. It's the garden in the backyard that you spent thousands of hours growing tomatoes that you're going to look back on and go, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I worked with the earth and grew things and gave food to my neighbors and made salads for my family. I'm so glad that I wrote the book that never got published, but it's on my daughter's shelf. Yeah. And there is a memory of me that will always exist, you know, yeah. or I'm so glad that I didn't become the baseball player I wanted to be, but I became a little league coach and I worked part-time at the sporting goods store and I helped kids fall in love with a thing that I was already in love with. And perhaps now they're helping their kids fall in love with it. Those are the ways that I think when we look back on our lives and I say a full life, you're looking back on a life and you're saying, I pursued my areas of passion while at the same time, allowed myself to be open to every opportunity that is presented to me, that I took every opportunity and said yes to it, at least initially to see what it could be before I turned in a different direction. Hmm. I love that. Well, it's a hard perspective to have, but once you can get it, decision-making becomes very, very easy. If you can, it's easy to turn away from the nonsense. Yeah. If you can allow yourself to, to, to frame and view things that way, which I agree with you, it is hard to do initially, but again, like what all we've talked about today, it's probably a habit. The more often you do it, the easier it probably becomes. Yeah. In my book, I recommend that people sort of view what that would be. And Mm -hmm. and actually, if you can create a visual representation of the hundred year old version of yourself. So I just got an email a couple of days ago from someone who's reading my book she chose Rose from Titanic as her hundred year old version of herself, the old Rose, you know, the yeah, old yeah, lady. Yeah. Yeah. And she took a, she took those pictures. She printed them off the internet and she placed them all around her house so that when it's time for her to make a decision about how to spend the day, she looks at old Rose. She's sees herself. And she says, what does that version of me want me to do with the next two hours of my life? And she said, it's really helping her remember how important it is to make decisions that will lead to a, to a well-lived life instead of a well-lived two-hour period of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say so, something that you have uh, done that helped helped me out a lot was in, in Storyworthy. I think it was Homework for Life. Isn't that what you call it? Yeah. The yep. story a day, basically. And so for me, as a storyteller, and I help people, you know, brands with their storytelling, that works that muscle a lot. It allows me to, to see the opportunities for stories. But the a side benefit that I wasn't necessarily prepared for, which makes sense now looking back, was the just the logging of these, you know, daily activities, especially with my kids, right? And so the story I might have written that day was, you know, something silly my daughter did or or whatever that I for sure would have forgotten, you know, in a couple of weeks. Like cuz it's not a huge life event, but a small little moment. And and capturing that moment just in a 3 to 5 sentence blurb every day was was so helpful like i still remember those from years ago because i just took that moment to to write it down um and 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 honestly that is i you know it might sound cheesy but it helped me feel like i'm leading a fuller life at least as a father yeah. uh, because i'm kind of documenting those and uh there's all those beautiful moments that that slip past 
We let them go all the time. You know, you referred to it as a side benefit and I always think it's the primary benefit. I don't lead with the primary benefit. I never say that because people won't, I think, buy into the idea of like, it's going to slow time down for you. It's going to make you remember things. When I tell them it's going to make you a better strategic storyteller with more stories to tell, more anecdotes to share, more metaphors for your business. (laughs) People go, oh, okay, I'm in on that. I'm getting value. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm tricking them. You know, I'm sort of totally it worked on me. It's they added. I love they added iodine to salt years ago in the 1950s if if you lived in the middle of the united states in the 1950s you had goiters all over your body because there was no salt in any of the water because it's all glacial water Mm. and when the water retreated it left no salt behind and so someone figured it out in the 1950s the scientist and he convinced the salt companies to put iodine in the salt because you can't taste it you don't even know you're eating it and suddenly everyone's goiters went away and i think of homework for life in that kind of way. I'm going to get you to do it because it's strategic and profitable and will help you be more likable and you'll get more dates and you know your congregation will like you more, all of those things, sure. right? Mm-hmm. But the iodine in homework for life is you're actually going to see your life through an entirely new lens. You're going to be happier about the life you're living. You're going to hold on to things longer and you're going to feel a year like a year. Because I think what happens for most people is once a year is done, it becomes a four digit number that has maybe two or three things attached to it. And that is the end of it. Whereas if you're doing homework for life, that never happens. You don't remember everything you put into your homework for life, but all you got to do is open it and you're right back in those moments that you had tossed aside, forgotten. Now they're back with you. And so my favorite thing is to get on a plane without Wi-Fi. And I say to myself, well, I'm just going to relive 2017. You know, and probably like a third of the moments in 2017, I remember, but two thirds of them are coming back to me. I'm back in the moment. So it's not like it's a surprise, but it's just a surprise that I actually forgot it. And I'm so glad it's back. So, yeah. And then instead of three moments or three things from that year, you've got potentially 365. And more than that, because I average now about six entries a day oh, in my wow. homework for life so the longer you do it the better you get at it and i mean i'm a little obsessive about it too mm-hmm. you know i capture like many many things throughout the day things my children say that i just never want to forget and you know what's the your thing i do go ahead I'm sorry where, where do you record them? i mean is it on your computer is it handwritten no i use a spreadsheet two column spreadsheet just like in the book yeah um i record them in notion on my phone throughout okay. the day if I'm gotcha. not around my computer. Yep. And then at the end of the night, I always take five minutes to say, is there anything I didn't get through the day? And there always is, you know, I run through my day and say, oh, that's the thing I'm going to want to get. That could be a story, or it's just the thing I never want to lose. And then I do that transferring process over time. Mm-hmm. The other thing I tell people to be cognizant of in homework for life, we're not only looking for like things people say and things we do and things we see. I think the things we think are just as important. So like if I have a thought and it's a new thought or an interesting thought or a surprising thought, I capture those things too. So it's not just external. You know, I think a lot of the internal things are important just just as much. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes those internal things end up becoming for me essays yeah. and um, humor columns and things like that. But even if they don't like, there was a day I was driving on the road that I can see here. I turned on the road. I looked up and it was the bluest of blue skies. It was beautiful, the blue and white. 
And I looked up and I remember I had the thought, I'm so glad we got blue. Because like we could have like burnt orange as our sky, right? Yeah. We got lucky that we got blue because burnt orange, maybe we would have gotten used to it, but it's yeah. definitely not as good as blue. No, totally. Right. And that thought, I was 50, and it took me till I was 50 to be grateful for the blue sky. Like that 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 color is the color that it is. That went into my homework for life. It's never going to be a story. No. But when I land on that moment, I'm going to be right back on that street, suddenly feeling that gratitude for blue sky again for the first and, time. And did it, I mean, now do you, every time you see it, do you kind of think about that? I do. I was on the beach yesterday. We go to the lake every day and yeah. sitting there with my wife, the sailboats came out for the sailboat lesson. And my wife said, this is my favorite part of the day when the sailboats come out for the sailboat lesson. And I said, and look at the sky. It's like perfect for these sailboats. And I said to her, isn't it lucky that we got blue? And she didn't understand because I had never shared this moment with her, you know, and I didn't bother to go into it because I go yeah. into a lot with her. She doesn't need all of my nonsense. I, I know. <laughs> but all the time, yeah, I look up and go, gratitude yeah. for the blue, you know, but it was a thought it took me 50 years to have. It's not an external thing, but it goes into my homework for life too. I, I grew up on the water. So that moment of the sailboat, the sailboats coming out and training, I, I have that image too burnt in my head. So I totally agree there. Um, so I know you write fiction and nonfiction is there a difference like in approach in the storytelling approach or is it similar and just diff different topics no it's totally different um for fiction i always start with a what if question and i have no idea where i'm going mm -hmm. you know so for my first book was what if there's a thief who steals things who break a burglar who breaks into your house and steals things but he steals things that you don't realize are missing. So you can keep coming back and get, that's just a what if. I had no idea where the story was gonna go. Fiction for me is the discovery process of what will happen and hopefully we'll find a satisfying ending. It's a lot of hope, but it works. Whereas my personal storytelling, which is about my life, I think of it as a puzzle. I have a collection of facts that I have to deal with and I can't change them. You know, In fiction, I can change anything to make things fit. Here I'm stuck with the facts. And the only things I can do is I can eliminate facts that don't help me tell the story effectively. And I can play with the order, but otherwise I have to deal with these facts. And I love that. I like the puzzle aspect of it. You know, people always ask me like, how do you know if the people at the moth are really telling true stories or not? And I always say, I don't know, but why would you make something up? Isn't it more fun to like contend with the truth and have to, fight with it to bring the greatest meaning out of it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I think that way though, because I'm a fiction writer. So I am able to make up all the things I want to make up. Why would I make something up when I take a stage and tell a story about myself? So those two processes are very different. I always know the end of a personal story. I'm aiming at the end because I lived it. I know where I'm going with a novel. I only know the beginning and I'm hoping to find a great ending. Mm, love it. So a lot of people, we talked about James Clear's Atomic Habits, great book uh, that a lot of people love. A lot of people only seem to read nonfiction, right? Self-help books, personal development, business books, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole whole population like that. What can those people uh, learn from incorporating fiction? Well, the first thing you can learn is you can start to understand how to interact with other people more effectively. There's a lot of science behind this. Uh, it's called the science of the mind. It builds empathy, essentially. Mm -hmm. When we read fiction, we allow ourselves to enter the interior lives of other people. Now, they're fictional people, but if an author does a good job, you can get into their life in a way that you don't get in nonfiction, where you're 
sort of learning something. And even if you're in the mind of someone, you're only in the mind of that person for the purpose they want you to be there. James Clear, right? You don't know if he's got kids and how long, how he gets along with his wife and, you yeah. know, does he hurt, you know, does he beat his dog or love his dog? You don't know these things. So fiction affords you an opportunity to enter people's minds and start to understand people a lot better. If you read a lot of fiction, I was an English major, you quickly understand as you're moving through life, you know, you meet someone, you go, oh, you know who this is? This is like that character from that book, except she does this differently. And then suddenly you start to understand them in a way that maybe you didn't understand them before. You know, I'm very adept at uh, sort of ridding myself of anger at people by asking myself why they're doing what they're doing. So if I can find empathy for them. So if I have a, a colleague at work who's really difficult and makes every day miserable for me, but I'm able to then tell myself she's in the middle of a terrible marriage. Every day she goes home and she's unhappy. Mm -hmm. Am I surprised that she comes to work and she's also unhappy and that manifests in being a difficult person to be around? No, I'm not surprised. I'm not happy about it. I don't have to like it. But it's, I understand now that it's not directed at me. Mm -hmm. And because it's not directed at me, I can get through my day much easier. I can absorb her abuse in a way that I could not before because I found empathy for her. Not even forgiveness. I don't even forgive her for her awfulness. But I have empathy for the life she's living. And therefore, I don't have to invest emotionally in what she is doing to the degree I used to. So I think that helps a lot. And if you want to be a storyteller, I think that it's just foolish not to be reading and watching movies, frankly. I think the fiction that is constructed is the models that we can then take our yeah. personal lives and put them into that model. You know, it's not uncommon for me to say, oh, that story that you're telling right now, that's a Forrest Gump story. Let's talk <laughs> about how Forrest Gump is, is, you know, is constructed because we're going to construct your personal story. We're going to use the Forrest Gump model mm -hmm. for your story. And I do that all the time. I do that with, with the Fortune 100 companies I work with. I'll say, oh, well, the story we're trying to tell about this product is really like, if you think about the first Mission Impossible movie, that's really what we're doing here, which is where, you know, we're going to create a lot of confusion in the beginning and we're not going to let people know really who the bad guy is yet. Right. We're going to we're going to throw in some red herrings in this product story so that we can reveal something shocking at the end. You know, yeah. and when you have those kinds of models that people can go, oh, yeah, well, I see how that works. That really that can change your storytelling considerably. So this this leads really well, I think, talking about the models to my probably my final question. Uh, I really love your take and, and uh, on the concept of the the five second moment, which I know you've probably talked about it extensively, but I just love the way that you explain it. It's just very simple to grasp. Uh, can you can you for those listening uh, explain what that is and why it's so crucial to a powerful story? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is the story in a lot of ways, right? right you know, if you're not telling an anecdote, which is sort of, here's a amusing thing that happened that didn't change me. If you're telling an actual story, which is, I used to be one kind of person and now I'm a different kind of person, or I used to think one thing, now I think another. The, the, the best stories are really the thing that qualifies something as a story is change over time. That there has to be a moment where a character yourself or the character in the book or the movie change in some way. And I fundamentally believe that those changes are instantaneous. There was a moment on the road, right? When I looked up at the sky and suddenly I felt gratitude. 
Now, there was maybe 50 years of experiences that led to the moment when I suddenly experienced that moment of gratitude, but I call it a five-second moment because I think these moments are instantaneous. I think the story up until that five-second moment is the demonstration of what caused the change to happen. You know, movies are the same way. They all lead up to a point. If you're thinking of a romantic comedy, right, it's essentially we're waiting for a five-second moment, and the five-second moment in a romantic comedy is the moment they decide to love each other or the or one decides to love the other one the moment that they kiss like that sig that signature moment when we know they're now in love i think it happens instantaneously almost always we change our minds instantaneously lots of lead up to it but eventually you get to a point where you go okay now i think something different mm -hmm. we aim at that moment that's the end of every story it's also the end of every movie it is the final moments of the thing where the character will change and maybe in a movie or in a book the change then results in what they choose to do in their final scene like the, the choices that they make the change and then the choice oftentimes when i'm telling a personal story it's just simply the change right. i used to be this person some stuff happened and now i'm this person ta-da and i think when we do that that's when people feel moved because we moved in the process but the five second moment is the idea that we have to find moments in our lives that are not huge. They're just tiny little moments when we suddenly thought about something in a different way or thought of ourselves in a different way or saw the world like saw a blue sky in a new and profound way. That's what we're looking for in stories. And, and that I like it because it strips you of the idea that you need to be in a car chase or right you know, be fighting off a dog or climbing a mountain, it allows you to be, you know, in a grocery store, you know, which happened, this happened to me, you know, a couple of years ago, I was walking the aisles of a grocery store and I do it quickly because I want to get the hell out of there. And I noticed that people were spending time in the grocery store in the same way I spend time, like playing with my children or, or reading a book. Like they acted as if it was quality time by the way they were moving. And it was the realization that they don't love the grocery store. They just don't understand the value of time. Mm. Right. So there was a moment when I didn't know that. And then in the cereal aisle at the stop and shop on Fen Road, I saw a woman just kind of wandering up and down the cereal aisle back and forth, meandering just looking at cereal like this was the best <laughs> thing she could be looking at right now. Whereas for me, I want to get out of there as quickly as possible so I can look at something worthy of my view, right? It's the same thing. I had the same realization like three days later in a parking lot when I watched someone walking through a parking lot and I passed them because I always walk quickly through a parking lot because it's the worst place to be as a parking lot. And yet people walk through a parking lot in the same way I stroll through a park as if it's a good place to be instead of a place to get the hell out of. For me, a parking lot is always a place to get the hell out of. But I had a moment of realization where I realized I view parking lots as hell because they are hell. Other people view parking lots as not hell, but only because they haven't seen it yet. They haven't realized that the 19 extra seconds you spent in the parking lot means that you don't get to spend 19 seconds doing something more valuable. And that means you don't value those 19 seconds. And I do. I want to get out of there as quickly as possible. But those are tiny little moments. And I love that. I always tell people that 
I think most stories, the moment of change, the five second moment, if people are watching it happen, they would never know you're undergoing an enormously profound moment in your life, right? Huh. The moment I look at my wife for the first time and go, wow, who is that? No one knows by looking at me that I was experiencing that moment, right? It, everything is interior. Right. And so the tricky thing about storytelling is we watch movies where everything is exterior. Right. But the stories we tell, almost everything happens interior, which means we have to bring those emotions, feelings, thoughts, ideas out in the story and make it meaningful for people, even though there's actually nothing kind of happening. You know, there's nothing exciting happening at that moment. It's all happening inside your head. Even with those movies, would you argue that the exterior events are just like a vehicle for that internal? Story? Absolutely. Yes. It, the problem with the movies is you don't get to get in their heads unless you have one of those weird movies where you get right. to hear someone's thoughts. Yeah. So filmmakers have to find ways to manifest interior thoughts through exterior actions, right? So if you watch the end of Indiana Jones, the Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones is tied to a post with his girlfriend, Marion, when they're getting ready to open the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that Indiana Jones has always been waiting to see. He's an archaeologist, a scientist. He wants to see what's inside it. And as they're getting ready to open it, he closes his eyes and he tells Marion to close her eyes too. It is the filmmakers, it is George Lucas and Steven Spielberg saying, Indiana Jones has somehow, through the course of this movie, found faith in God. Because the only reason Indiana Jones closes his eyes as the Ark of the Covenant is being opened is he suddenly has stopped thinking about it as an archaeological artifact and something of religious power. And that's the only reason he closes his eyes. He doesn't believe in God in the beginning of the movie, absolutely does not, calls it hocus pocus and nonsense. At the end of the moment, at the end of the movie, he's closing his eyes. He, we can't have Indiana Jones say, as they were getting ready to open the Ark of the Covenant, I suddenly felt God for the first time in my life. We can't hear him say that, right? Because that yeah. is not a movie. But we can watch Indiana Jones close his eyes and go, he believes. He knows something that he didn't know at the beginning of the movie. My God, the man found faith in God by the end of the film. So filmmakers have to manifest those thoughts through the exteriors that we see. It can also just be as simple as a kiss. Mm -hmm. Like the sudden thought of, oh my God, at the end of when Harry met Sally, right? Mm -hmm. Harry and Sally run to each other and Harry has had the moment, which we know Sally has already loved him all along or for a long time. Mm -hmm. Harry has to fall in love with Sally. He runs. That's the manifestation of the urgency that he feels in his heart to get to this woman. And the kiss is the physical manifestation of that love. In a book though, and in the stories we tell out loud, characters get to talk to us through their thoughts and um, we get, it's a little easier for us in that regard. And I know the example you used in story where there was Jurassic park or one of them <clears throat> when he's right. in the tree with the kids, it wasn't a lot of action going on, but he, again, he wasn't thinking like, man, maybe I wouldn't like to have kids. One day. Right. All he does is he hugs them, right? Yeah. He hugs them close. And as he hugs them, the claw that fossilized yep. claw that's been with him all his life that he loves so much falls to the ground. Suddenly yep. he's let go of, his need for work and science and all of those things, or at least he's put them aside because he's got two kids in his arms. They're not even yeah. his, but he's holding them as close as any father holds their kids. Yeah. Which is the same, the same call that he scared the kid with in the beginning. 
Right, exactly. In the beginning, he uses yeah, the claw to threaten a kid. Yeah, it's so he good. doesn't like kids. At the end, he squeezes the kid and the claw and falls it, to the that's ground. So good. It's so good. Um, all right. I know we got to go, but I read like some recently because I was I love the five second moment and I was like making a post about it or something. Then I read an article by some somebody, I don't even know who it was, but he was just like, actually, uh, I think that film was about dinosaurs. <laughs> he was like <laughs> quoting. He was quoting, quoting uh, everything about the five second, second moment. And, you know, I guess trying to debunk it. And I had a little laugh because he's like, uh, actually, I think it's just about dinosaurs, like not about his transformation. I was like, OK, I think, um, I think if you ask Steven Spielberg, you know, I think he would say absolutely not. And an email I received from someone just recently, another Spielberg movie, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, the mm -hmm. Tom Cruise version of it. Right. I, I get an email from someone who read Storyworthy and said, I just saw Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. It's a story about divorce and how a family has to work through divorce and how children have to come to terms with a father who is not ideal, but loves them. And I wrote back and said, that is correct. It has nothing to do with aliens, right? And she said, my God, it doesn't. It is not about aliens. It has aliens in it. And that's what got me into the movie theater. Yeah, but when yeah. Tom Cruise is walking down that street in Boston at the end of that film and his what his ex-wife looks at him with the gratitude of you brought our children through that and they are alive and we cannot be together as a couple, but as parents, I will forever be grateful to have you as the father of our children. That's what the movie's about. Everything else is for popcorn and soda and to put your butts in the seats. And that reader understood it immediately. And I was like, congratulations, you're on yep. level two now of storytelling. Or <laughs> <laughs> John and find more moments that nobody else is seeing. I think we see them. I just think we see them in the back of our minds. I think yeah. we leave the movie theater and go, oh, that was really good, but we can't articulate it until you meet me or someone like me who wants to deconstruct it it's, for you. You know what? We're back at the homework for life thing where it's like you pitch them you know, the aliens, but the real benefit they're getting from it is the emotional, you know, transformation, but you kind of have to like, that's the spoonful of sugar for the medicine to go down type of thing. That's like the hidden benefit. Yeah. And when we watched um, those Marvel movies, I'll never forget the first Avengers movie. Mm -hmm. One of the characters in the movie, Captain America tells the Hulk, he's not the Hulk yet. He's Bruce Banner. Mm -hmm. He says to Bruce, he says, I think it's time for you to get angry as this giant alien ship is coming. And Bruce Banner turns to Captain America and says, it's my secret cap. I'm always angry. <laughs> I pause the movie and go to my wife. That's it right there. That's the movie. The movie is Bruce Banner is forever angry about what has happened to him. He is not happy with it at all. By the end of the Marvel series, I told her he will have to find some happy middle where he can be the Hulk, but also Bruce Banner, because right now he lives with nothing but anger. And if you think about the movie, at the end of the movie, he becomes the Bruce Banner version of the Hulk. My wife exactly. is like, I can't believe you saw that. And I tell you that moment when he turns and says, Cap, it's my secret, I'm always angry. It causes so much stirring in me because I just <laughs> understand that it's a moment that is so important in the arc of that character, the acknowledgement, I'm always angry. It's just, it's a superhero who doesn't want to be a superhero, but is forced to be a superhero and just wants to be a scientist. Yeah. So Steve those, the moments are everywhere. You just got to watch for them, look for them and acknowledge them. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. This has been like very, very pleasurable for me. 
you know, my listeners, I'm sure they'll love it too. This was, uh, this was, uh, this was just for me. <laughs> Thank you. It was honestly, I, these are my favorite conversations in the world when we can talk about stuff like this. It's yeah, man, not, not as many people get as excited about it as you and I do. And I hope no, I'm such is, a nerd about it. So I, I love it. It's one of my favorite things about the show is like, I get to meet people that I look up to that share the same passion and we just nerd out for a while and, and, and that's it. But I appreciate you uh, spending some time and nerding out with me for about an hour. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.